0: Good morning, everyone. It's good to see all of you, all of your faces here today to worship the Lord and the beauty of His holiness. It's a beautiful day for more reasons than one. Um, today's sermon is titled, Into the Vortex of Change. That's a big word, vortex. It's not, every, it's, it's not a common word to, to, to some of us. I want to tell you about an experience that I had many years ago. Actually, every year, uh, when I was a little kid, I went through um, typhoons. I lived in a typhoon um, belt when I was growing up. By the way, I forgot my um, clicker. Can you? Thank you. So a massive vortex is whirling overhead, gathering mass and speed and and I was, at that time, studying. Uh, I went back to the Philippines, those of you that, that know my story already. I've uh, been here since I was about 13, 14 years old. Went back to my country of origin to take, take up my undergrad and, <clears throat> and so on. And that's where I was when this massive vortex wh- whirls around, or overhead, gathering mass and speed. And it's headed straight to where I I was staying at that time, which was about a couple of uh, miles outside of the seminary. Um, But you know, I've been through many typhoons before. As I said, I lived in Typhoon Alley or Typhoon Belt, and having lived in a typhoon alley as a kid, I sort of knew the ropes, you know, you know that uh, when you start hearing the news that there's a tropical depression forming, that there's low pressure and there's a tropical depression forming somewhere, somewhere out in the sea, uh, you, you don't really pay attention to it because it's days away and who cares about a typhoon that's far away. And having lived through all of that, I sort of knew when to uh, ignore a typhoon when it, when it starts uh, showing up, and when to pay attention. Um, so it um, starts out as a tropical depression, as I said, and then it gathers steam and, and starts heading towards land, and that's when start, things start to get serious. Most of the time, most of the time, these typhoons end up somewhere else, and you get to, you get to be in the periphery of the, of the typhoon or the storm. Um, the storm's fury lands somewhere else, and, um, but this time it's different because the news is telling us that it's heading straight at me where I was staying, where our seminary uh, is or was. And it's gathering steam fast, and it's extraordinary because it's proving to be a big one, a powerful one. Every storm warning, at least from where I came, where I came from, is given... Um, by how many hours it is from landfall. And 36 hours uh, before landfall, the barometer which measures the atmospheric uh, pressure uh, starts to dip. Slowly it starts to dip and, and wind starts to pick up a little bit. And ocean swell rises to about 13 feet and seven, seven, um, seven seconds apart. And up on the high horizon, you will see cirrus clouds, white clouds gathering, gathering, plumes of them, and and then the government starts giving its first warning, signal number one. 24 hours before landfall, the atmospheric pressure falls even faster. Low pressure starts to build even more, and and low clouds uh, now streak overhead faster, and and wind picks up to about 35 miles per hour, not so bad. You You can still walk around outside. Um, uh, And the government gives its second-tier warning, signal number two. And with that, the government expects everyone, after giving the the second warning, signal number two, expects all evacuations that need to be done, already done, and all preparations already completed by this time. And so I tried to prepare as much as I could um, Once again, you know, having lived through many typhoons in my life, you know, you tend to underestimate the strength of a typhoon, and, you know, I've seen them all. Eighteen hours before landfall and squalls of wind and rain turn into what seems like a thousand whips lashing at the windows outside of my apartment, and I'm starting to get scared. Um... Atmospheric pressure drops even faster and lower, and the wind starts whistling. Now the wind is, is about 55 miles per hour fast or furious. Not bad. I drive faster on the freeway. The government issues its third-tier warning, signal number three. Time to get inside and hunker down. Things are getting a little too serious now. And two, uh, 12 hours before landfall, uh, and dark clouds start to descend to, the, to, to their lowest point. And you, it seems like if you're out there watching you know, these dark clouds, you could almost like, touch them. They're descending fast, and atmospheric pressure descends even more, and, and the wind now begins to howl at 75 miles per hour, driving driving the rain into what feels like a thousand sledgehammers pounding at my shelter where I, was, where I was living. This time around, however, this time around, the government issues something that it doesn't issue every time a typhoon comes. This one is reserved only for the super typhoons. When the wind starts to gather steam beyond 100 miles per hour to about 115 miles per hour, then you're really, really scared out of your wits. Category four typhoon is a super typhoon, and this happens to be one this time around, and it's headed straight at me where I was, and you know it was really scaring me to death. I hunkered down in my second-story apartment, about a couple of miles outside of the seminary, um, and I was alone, and I was beginning to, to be afraid. You see, my apartment windows are lattice work. Um, interlaced with abalone shells, not exactly the kind that would stop a 115-mile-per-hour wind or gust, you know? And so, you know, as, 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 the, as the storm hits land, finally, and, and, and it, it, it makes landfall, about late morning, 11 12, 11, 12 o'clock noon, all hell breaks loose. The wind starts to roar, and driving the, the, the rain to pound on the wooden walls, and, and the windows, and the aluminum roofing of my apartment. And, you know, you know it's really, really uh, an awesome sight to see if you're not inside uh, th- that apartment. Outside you have coconuts, sheets of plywood, and metal roofing flying like missiles. If you care to look outside, that is. Electrical poles fall like dominoes, and I cower in my room. Scared that my shelter would not hold. Suddenly, as soon as that fury unleashes its might, suddenly everything stops. Everything stops. The rain and the wind disappear. They completely stop. The dark clouds gone. Wherever they went, I don't know. They're gone. The sun shines on a clear blue sky. Some people start to come out of their lair. Um, but I knew too well that having paid attention this time around to the, to the news, I knew that if the storm is headed directly towards me and the, and, and the wind suddenly stops, that I've got to be in the eye of the storm. And I was. The other half of the storm, that is, is still behind the eye. For about 20, 30 minutes, there was calm and peace. And then after that, the storm's fury returns. And a thousand sledgehammers start pounding again at the walls and, and the windows and, and, and the roof of my poor apartment. Just as scary as the first. This typhoon was the most vicious I had ever gone through. And I've gone through a lot growing up. Um, It marks a couple of firsts for me. First of all, as I said, it was the first time when I found myself in the eye of the storm. And it's the first time that a typhoon ever scared me out of my wits as if I was going to die. Change often scares the living daylights out of us, doesn't it? It's like a super typhoon. A lot of times we like, you know, we like the familiar as humans. That's, that's, that's who we are. Um, we like to do the same things. We like to rely on habits and, you know, on, on um, uh, the regularity of our habits and our routine, daily routine. What's your daily routine? Um, some have theirs uh, uh, firmer, set firmer than others. Mine is not as firm as my wife's. And so I use an app to help me firm up my habits and I use an app called tick tick and um, and I don't want to mention all of the habits that I'm trying to form here but uh, uh, but I have quite a few and I go through it every single day Um, like you know like we all I mean some of us like to get up same same time in the morning some a lot of us don't have a choice we have to get to work Um, same breakfast same lunch sometimes same shower time, same shows to watch after the day is done. And, you know, ha- our habits help us regulate our world to, make, to help make our world a little bit more predictable. And we all have them. As I said, some people have firmer habits than others. And, and um, my wife, my wife, she doesn't need an app to firm up her habits, she's got her habits really set, almost like clockwork. And and sometimes, you know, I, you know, I, I, I'm, l- I'm left. Wondering how in the world can I you know, I look up to my wife in a lot of ways and 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 that's one one way I Want to I want to be able to uh, Go about my daily routine quite like my wife does and but you know I'm very distractible and you know something comes up that's exciting and I leave behind my habits and uh, In pursuit of the next exciting thing. Uh, I'm an excitable fellow Um, and that's what happens to me a lot of times we live in a world that's constantly changing however two and a half years ago my family's world my world and my family's world changed drastically when a news comes to us about my wife having ms it changes my world drastically But you know what? We live in a world that's constantly changing. We cannot expect to stay the same. If we stay the same, we die. Two and a half years ago, our world changed drastically. Your world changed drastically. When this once-in-a-century pandemic hit, causing havoc all around, disruptions, sufferings, uncertainties, the likes of which we've never seen before and probably will never see again unless you live to be 100 years from now. Today, we celebrate and honor our teachers, and even there at the school, we see a lot of changes, as I said. We have a new principal who is not new, at least to those of us here at Auburn, new to me, sort of, Pastor Dave. Gives me a little bit of comfort, as a matter of fact, that we have a pastor at the helm over there, because I could identify. I know he knows what I know. Here at Auburn Church, we see changes as well. In less than two years, we've had to say goodbye to some people that we've known for quite a long time. Jim and Kathy Brewster, for one, now living over there in Lincoln, Nebraska. Others have moved away, and and we see new faces, yes, and, and, and evolving challenges, changes. And we are nervous, and sometimes we are afraid. Of all the fears we have, there is one that trumps them all. It is the one most primal fear. When we came out of uh, the safety and the comfort of our own mother's womb, um, we were born with this fear. Where we were safest, where we, were, we felt most cared for, when we come out of that womb, all that feeling of, you know, of comfort and, 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 and security uh, is, is, is immediately taken from us. And there in our mother's womb, uh, Mom breathed and ate for both, both of us, for the baby and herself. There in our mother's womb, we curl up and we nestle and, and we are provided for. And, and, and mom's voice um, uh, soothes us. And then suddenly we are thrust into a world that is big, that is noisy, that is, um, uh, that is hungry, and that is bright and cold. It is, as some would call it, the original fear. One we circle back to time and again in our lives. What is it? What is this fear? It is the fear best expressed in the question, and these two questions. Who will take care of me now? And how will my needs be met? Every person, every child, depends on the love and the goodwill of their parents. And every child and every person is confronted with this fear sooner or later in their lives. And more than once. If I came face-to-face with my, with my primal fear, then I will know that I'm a human being. Because we all have this. I first came face-to-face with my primal fear. When one night, when I was a little kid, this was, once again, in my former life, back in the old country, when my mom, writhing in pain, collapses on the floor, and I thought she was going to die. We lived in a very remote village. Uh, There was no ambulance, not even a single car. And there was no... Doctor, no hospital, no nurses, no clinic, nothing. We lived in a very secluded place. And, um, and so when my mom was writhing in pain on the floor and me and my sister were, you know, were, were wondering what was going to happen, um, a couple of men from the village started to help out and they, they, um, they made a makeshift gurney and, and, uh, made out of a bed sheet tied to a bamboo pole. Um, at both ends, and, and they, they started walking from our village to the nearest town about seven miles away on foot. And they were hoping that when they reached that place, my mom would still be alive. And if she's still alive, that they would find a car and that they would be able to drive my car to the nearest hospital about 30 miles away in the dead of night. And the possibility of my mom dying grew every moment she was away from us. And she was gone a pretty long time. She survived it, but we didn't know that back then. And I was confronted immediately with my primal fear. Who will take care of me now? And how will my needs be met? If mom dies, what will happen to me. Life throws curveballs at us all the time. It's just a matter of time. If you haven't seen a curveball yet, don't go go watch the Padres. I'm a Padres fan, sorry, all the way down to San Diego. Um, But if you haven't seen a curveball yet, you will soon find out what it is. Because life throws curveballs at us all the time. Shaking us from the foundations of our lives, altering our worldviews even. Six summers ago, not two and a half years ago, six summers ago, my family and I were dealt with a cruel one, as I'd said. When we find out when my wife was diagnosed that she has MS, this cruel news hits me like a brick wall. And my life and the life of my children have never been the same ever since it's hard to describe it's hard to describe to anyone to anyone the suffocating feeling when you think that doom is right around the corner when hope recedes and you you, you enter into this deep and dark and long and dank valley when your world seems to be caving in on you, when changes are overwhelming you. It's a scary place to be. For days, I walked around dazed and befuddled. I, you know, I, I was scared. I was scared out of my wits. My primal fear circles my mind like a pack of wolves howling at me, waiting to pounce at my weakest point. Fear of change has, at its very core, this primal fear behind it. Who will take care of me now? And how will I be provided for? How will my needs be met? Whatever semblance of normalcy, normalcy and familiarity we have, whatever habits we've established for ourselves, routines that we've had all our lives, or we've built up all our lives suddenly mean very little as we find out that we are no longer in the driver's seat. We are let loose, as it were, from our anchor points, from our moorings, and we are seduced into a dangerous dance with with some strange bedfellows. A couple of them. One, is fatalism, or passive acceptance of what you cannot control. And the other one is its opposite, control, or personal sovereignty. As if to say, there is nobody sovereign in this universe, therefore it must be me. It must be me. Fatalism is the belief that events are predetermined and are inevitable. And the more you fight, the current, the worse you will be, and so therefore you have to submit passively. Let yourself be carried by the waves of change. Whatever will be, will be. Que sera sera. And in Filipino, we even have a word for that. Bahalana. Let it be. Whatever happens, will happen. Fatalism. The opposite of it, as I said, is control, which is another way of saying that no one else is. So therefore it must be me. It's really, it's really a, a sad form of nihilism. Not that nihilism is a, bi- is a great thing. I'm not a big fan of nihilism. Nihilism basically means everything is meaningless. There is no purpose in everything. So therefore, nihilism says because there is no meaning in life, because life deals you with curve, one curveball after another, then you must push against that meaninglessness and create meaning for yourself. You must take control. You're the one in control of your own life. It's a practical application. It's, it's a sad application of nihilism. And it's a, also a form of existentialism. I exist. I'm here. There's no meaning, but I exist. And I insist that I must make meaning out of my life. And so we try to push against the chaos that engulfs us and, uh, and the vortex that would sweep us away. Curveballs. But into this vortex of change we often find ourselves comes our only true anchor point. And of course we know what it is or who it is. That one person who answers our primal fear, what will happen to me now? Who will take care of me from now on? Scripture tells us that this person is no other than God Himself, of course, who is immovable and unchanging. Now, those two words are can be problematic in and of itself, right? Themselves. Malachi chapter three verse six tells us these words. You know, uh, 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 blares out to us and says, "For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, O children of Jacob, you children of Jacob, are not consumed." And applied to Jesus Christ in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8, we find these words that says, Jesus is the same yesterday and today and forever. And we say, yes, that is my anchor point. But it is easy to misunderstand what these two texts mean and others like it. God's unchanging nature, what theologians often call his impassivity, His unchanging quality has really nothing to do with rigidity or even with timelessness of God superintending or or not superintending over His creation, but standing above and beyond time as we know it and not getting involved. It has nothing to do even with preventing change from happening. It has nothing to do even uh, with, with giving you and me the justification to take control because He doesn't want to be. Has nothing to do with that. God not changing does not mean that he's impassive, that it's not affected by life as we see it here on earth. As a matter of fact, it's the opposite. It's the opposite. Let's not make the, you know, the, uh, the mistake of thinking that when, God, when, when Scripture says that God is uh, unchanging, that is unmoving, it's not the same thing. There are three related concepts, biblical concepts, that reinforce our understanding of God's impassivity, His unchanging quality. In the Old Testament Scripture, for example, we are reminded of three things. There are three things that, um, at least three things, there are actually more things, but we we don't have time. We are reminded that God, first of all, is, number one, a covenantal God, number two, a living God, and number three, a righteous God. And I'm not going to spend the time here to kind of you know, unfold that in, in, theological, in a theological exegesis or, of, of sorts, only uh, to explain in simple terms what these mean to, to, to you and me. In simple terms, what these means is that God, number one, attaches himself to you and me. That's what it means when, when Scripture says that God is a God of, of, of covenants. He's not the God that stays up there far and above where we live. He comes down, not only comes down, he attaches himself to you and me. Yesterday I had the, the, the distinct opportunity of reminding our, our, our kids at, at chapel uh, yesterday. Drawing from the lesson of, lessons, uh, from the life lesson of, of, of Jacob's life, of, of Jacob in his life. And one of the lessons that we, we, we find that that I emphasized um, or reminded our children yesterday is that before or, or is this that, that God picks you before you pick him. Before we could even find it within ourselves to pick God and to choose God, he has already picked us, he has already chosen us, and he's already attached himself to us. So close that he attaches himself closer than a brother and a sister and a mother and an earthly mother and an earthly father. That's what it means when when Scripture says that God is a covenantal God. He picks us despite of ourselves and does not wait for us to shape up and to prove ourselves. He chooses us out of the goodness of His heart purely by His grace. That's what it means when when Scripture says that He is a God of covenants. He sticks to us before we can stick to Him. And when Scripture says that He's a living God, it really, what, what it really means is that God rubs shoulders with us. And He's affected by the changes that happen in our lives. He's a living God. He's, you know, he is with you every moment of your life because He's alive and He can be reasoned with. And he rubs shoulders with you and me. And the last thing is this. When Scripture says that God is a righteous God, what it really simply means is this. That word righteous or righteousness, the most basic meaning of that Hebrew word righteous does not really have any moral connotation to it, attached to it. It simply means consistent. That's what it means. And so when we say that, Jesus, that God in Jesus Christ is unchanging, what one of the things we mean is that he is consistent. He comes to us and he is reliable. God is a consistent person. He's a man of his word. When he says something, he will do it. You can count on him and he will always see you through. Towards the end of Jesus' ministry on earth, he breaks the news to his disciples that things are about to drastically change once again. And he starts in John 14 to break the news and with these immortal words in verses 1 to 3, which we'll go to in just a minute or two. And as Jesus Christ tells them about the, chain, the impending change that's about to happen, his death, his resurrection, is going, resurrection his ascension is going away, uh, suddenly the disciples are, are, are confronted, uh, are come face to face with the primal fear that we all encounter time and again in our lives. Who will take care of us? How will our needs be met? And Jesus calms their fears. And it starts with the first three beautiful, beautiful three verses of John 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would, have, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again. I will come again. Don't worry. These changes are not too big for me. And it will not be too big for you. Jesus demonstrates everything that the Old Testament Scripture tells us God is. He demonstrates that all of those things are true, that Jesus sticks to us closer than a brother, that He is a living person that we can deal with, that we can reason with, that we can walk with, and that He is righteous, He is consistent. You can count on Him every single time. And then He gives these words... In John 14, verses 18 and 19. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will... um, Actually, that's not it for now. That's uh, verses 12 to 14. Uh, Let me go to that text. I don't think I put it down. That was the one that was read to us uh, earlier uh, today. Um, John 18, verses... Sorry, 14, verses 18 and 19. Sorry. Uh, Here it is. It says... John 14, I should say. I'm I'm losing my spots. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while the world will see me no more. But you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. And then Jesus Christ goes beyond just reassuring them uh, uh, and and, uh, assuaging their, their, their fears, their primal fears. He goes beyond that, he, and, and He challenges them, and by virtue of that, He challenges us. And He says that changes we see in our lives, from now on, we should begin to see them as opportunities to do greater work. And that's what we find in, in, in those verses that I, I clicked on, verses 12 to 14. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do. Because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. I will do it. In verse 26, he says, but the Helper... The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Too many changes at the school? Greater works. Too many changes here at church? In your life? Don't bemoan the changes. Be an optimist, because God in Jesus Christ is challenging you to do greater works with him. The late British actor and polymath Peter Ustinov once said in an interview that the world is too messed up for us to be pessimists, and I think he's right. And then he says, we have no choice but to, uh, to be optimists. The world is too sad of a place to be pessimists. That's a nice way of of, of putting it, right? And then he gives his own definition. I like his definition. Here's what he says. I always thought that an optimist was a person who knew exactly how sad a place this world could be. And a pessimist, someone who woke up to it every morning. Amazing. And it's true. You see... God in Jesus Christ calls us to greater work. And that's what changes do to us. They call us away from our comfort zone into the exciting possibilities of working with Him and bringing bringing about a future that hasn't been created, that He wants to partner with you to create. That's what's going to happen at our school. That's what's going to happen here. That's what can happen In your life, he's calling you, he's challenging you. Be an optimist. Don't wake up every morning thinking this world is going to hell. So, what if it is? You're not in charge, and there is someone else who is. You don't have to settle for a nihilistic worldview don't settle. There's something far greater than a nihilistic existentialist worldview. Take each change as an opportunity to do do greater works with God, to partner with Him in our lives, in the lives of others. My family and I are learning to live with our new normal and we are managing that thing that lives in my wife's body. It's not easy. But there have been and continue to be unexpected blessings for us. The changes my wife's MS has brought our lives actually have brought my family closer to each other. To appreciate each other more, to support each other more, to lean on each other and on God more. And to bring about a future that we want to create with God that hasn't been created yet. That's how open God is. He doesn't predetermine everything. He predetermines certain things, but not everything. He leaves a lot of things wide open so that you can use the changes in your life as opportunities, as catalysts to do something greater for God. This is what change can do. It drives us to be in tight relationship with others, to call on others, To help us. And to call on God to help us. And when we do that, the promise is there. Call on me and I will answer you. And I will show you great things you haven't seen before. I have a future for you. It's wide open, but I call you. Step out of your comfort zone. Accept the changes in your life and let's go and create the future together. Towards the end of the movie Prince Caspian, part of the Chronicles of Narnia series. Um, when finally, things have been made right once again in Narnia, after Narnia falls on, on hard times. Once again, Aslan's, by Aslan's guidance, things are brought back to, to normal. And, but another change is about to happen, and that is that Aslan is about to go away once again. And once again, the, uh, the Pevensies, Peter and Susan and Edmund and Lucy, are about to return to earth, leaving Caspian and all the Narnians behind. And, you know, parting is always sweet sorrow, but it's always sorrowful, yes. Especially if you're the one getting left behind. But with this impending change comes a new challenge. And, it, and, and, and you know, it, 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 there's, there's that theme song, The Call. If those of you that have uh, seen this movie, you will remember that song. It started out as a feeling which then grew into a hope. And then the refrain, call on me. Call on me. And I will come to you. And that's what it is. If you call, help will come. It will always come. Why? Because God in Jesus Christ is unchanging, which means he is consistent. He sticks to you closer than your brother and your sister. And he rubs shoulders with you every moment of each day. So call on him and some help will come. So into the vortex of change we go. Optimists, every single one of us. Optimists. Waking up every morning thinking, through Jesus Christ, I can do greater works with him. Father God, we thank you that you are with us. Thank you that you are a God of covenants. Thank you that you are living, you are alive. And thank you as well that you are consistent. And most of all, you are consistent towards us. These are the things that we hold on to as we go through many changes in our lives. You stick to us when we cannot stick to you. You hold on to us when we cannot hold on to you. And you accept us before we even become acceptable to anyone, and least of all to you. Thank you for being you. In Jesus' name, amen.